Our passage this morning is taken once again from the Gospel according to Luke. We'll be uh, finishing, Lord willing, this morning, Luke chapter 14. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, others who see it and begin to mock him, saying, this man built, began to, so this man began to build and was not able to finish. But what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? This is no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for our sanctification. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we consider this passage of Scripture this morning, we see before us one of the hard sayings of Jesus. Lord, as we consider what our Lord Jesus teaches about the nature and about the cost of discipleship, Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help each one of us, Lord, to consider the cost. To consider that following the Lord Jesus will, will cost us everything. And we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you will cause us to examine our lives to reveal ways in which we have been unwilling to count the cost and unwilling to pay the cost. We pray, Lord, that also through the powers of your Holy Spirit, you will help us to see the glories of Christ. That he's worth any cost. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. As he began the long journey from Syrian Antioch to Rome, he knew that it would be a one-way journey. He knew that he would never return. The first leg of his journey would take him as far as Troas, the seaport, where we'd embark for Rome. As he traveled, he was following and covering some of the same ground as the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey through Asia Minor some 50 years earlier. Along the way, he was met by delegates from churches of Ephesus, and and many others. 
However, as he made this journey, he made it in chains, escorted by a unit of Roman soldiers. He would leave Antioch as its bishop and would arrive in Rome at the Colosseum as a martyr. In fact, as the first martyr in the Roman Colosseum. Speaking of Ignatius, bishop of Antioch, successor to Peter, an early champion of the doctrine of the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Ignatius would follow in Christ's footsteps even to the point of death, dying in the third Roman persecution of the early church under Caesar Trajan, the year of our Lord, 108. John Fox records that Ignatius wrote to the church in Rome prior to his arrival, asking them not to seek for his deliverance from martyrdom, lest they should deprive him of that which he most longed and hoped for. He says, now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so only that I may win Christ Jesus. And even when he was sentenced to be thrown To the lions, when he heard them roaring, he proclaimed, I am the wheat of Christ. I'm going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts, that I may be found pure bread. Now, Ignatius sounds superhuman. In many respects, his testimony is superhuman. What What could motivate a man to embrace suffering like that? What could empower a man to endure suffering like that? Only a disciple of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, could embrace such suffering for Christ. For only a disciple of Jesus Christ knows that Christ is indeed worth it, that following Christ is worth anything, any deprivation, any suffering. Christ is worthy of all of our lives. In 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, the apostle writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In Hebrews 11, 36 to 38, the writer speaks of those who were tortured and refused to be, to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Who suffered and were killed with the sword, who went about covered in animal skins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, those of whom the world is not worthy. Friends, Ignatius was simply one in a long line of Christian martyrs that continues to this day. Many of our brothers and sisters are suffering and dying for our faith, even as we are gathered here this morning. Now, of course, we know that not all disciples of Christ are martyred for Christ, but all disciples will give up their lives for Christ. This is the essence of discipleship. 
So with our passage this morning, Luke 14, 25 to 35, Jesus now shifts his target audience. Having completed his polemic against the Pharisees and their false teaching, Jesus now begins once again to teach the crowds. Yet his focus remains the same. Jesus is still teaching over the nature and character of true discipleship. As we saw last week, Jesus had said that possessions and relations can be a hindrance in coming to him. Now he warns that possessions and relations can be a hindrance to following him. So as you can see, Jesus is still teaching about the nature and character of true disciples and discipleship. In fact, true discipleship is going to be the focus of Jesus' ministry for the rest of his journey towards Jerusalem. Essentially, the issue at hand is the Pharisees didn't teach about the nature of true discipleship, but I'm going to tell you what discipleship really is. A disciple is a student, a pupil. Jewish disciples sat under rabbis who would teach them the Torah and, and its interpretation according to rabbinic law. The, the disciple would also serve the rabbi and submit to their authority. But to be a disciple of Jesus, however, means more, far more. For Jesus is teaching his disciples the only way to God. Jesus' disciples must sit to him, submit to him unconditionally, completely as God. And so the disciples of Jesus submit everything, even their lives, over to Jesus. So the discipleship of Jesus means a radical transformation in your attitude to everything and everyone around you. Discipleship to Jesus is putting God first in everything, but it's actually far more than, than simply putting God first. It's holding God as everything. Your submission to Jesus will affect every other aspect of your life. And here's the thing. If you're not Christ's disciple, you're not Christ. If you're not Christ's disciple, you are not saved. There are no halfway Christians. The three key parts to our passage this morning. First of all, in verses 25 to 27, discipleship of Jesus of Jesus will cost you everyone. Verses 28 to 33, discipleship of Jesus will cost you everything. Verses 34 and 35, rejecting Jesus will cost you a whole lot more. We'll see that salvation will cost you nothing, but discipleship will cost you your life. But rejection will cost you your soul. So first of all, then verses 25 to 27, discipleship of Jesus will cost you everyone. Again, the scene is now shifted from the house of the Pharisees, of the house of the Pharisee, where Jesus was met with hostility instead of with hospitality. There were great crowds now following him once again. As Jesus continues on the road to Jerusalem, evidently his popularity that has waxed and waned throughout his university is once again on the rise. But Jesus is not taken in by the fickle crowds. There were many traveling with Jesus, but very few would go with him the whole way. 
So Jesus turns to them and says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? It doesn't sound very nice. It sounds really hard. It sounds really painful. And it is. But before we look at what Jesus is saying, let's look at what Jesus isn't saying here. Jesus is not saying here that you must literally hate your family. The most important rule of Bible interpretation is that you must interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. And Scripture never contradicts itself. The Lord Jesus will never contradict himself. The same one who commanded us in Luke 6.27 to love our foes would not tell us to hate our families. Furthermore, the fifth commandment teaches that we are to honor our father and mother and Jesus would never teach anything that contradicts his own moral law. So if Jesus is not literally telling us to hate our families, well, what is Jesus saying? He's telling us that we need to love him more. In fact, we're to love Jesus so much more that our attitudes towards even those closest to us is like hatred in comparison. Jesus taught similarly in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, discipleship is putting God first in everything and here putting God first in every relationship. We need to realize that, that the enemies, you need to realize that the enemies of your own soul are sometimes the members of your own household. Being a disciple in first century Jewish culture would mean, re, often mean rejection from your family. For many, it means that today. We've seen that in, in the, the, many of the persecuted Christians that we pray for, especially in the Muslim context where, where the abuse and, and even murder of Christians often comes at the hands of siblings, of, of parents and husbands. Now, thankfully, you aren't likely to face that kind of persecution in our culture, at least not yet. But increasingly, you'll be rejected and you'll be shamed for following Jesus, maybe even by your own family members. Family can try, even out of a misguided desire, to help you, to convince you to be more moderate. Not to be so radical in your commitment to Jesus Christ. They want you to compromise just a little. Not be so hardcore. Children can easily be influenced in the wrong direction by their parents. I was talking to someone just the other day about how he's seeing someone that he loves following in the sinful pattern of her parents. Siblings can be a bad influence. I know I was a horrible influence on my brother prior to coming to faith. But since I've come to faith, I've tried to turn that around and to be, instead be a good influence on him for the glory of God, as well as in all of my relationships. Just think about the influence that you have on others. Are you being an influence of God? Are you being an influence for God? You will give an account for this, for all of your relationships. Disciples need to weigh everything in light of who God is and what he commands in his word. And if the demands of relations and the demands of God 
committed conflict, the demands of relations must step aside. Being a disciple means that you're far less concerned about offending others than you are concerned with offending God. You need to seek the Lord. It is before him and him alone he will stand and give an account. Again, this is hard. This is painful. It's often lonely, feeling like you're standing alone. Parents, teach your kids that following Jesus means that you will often stand alone. That's where the church comes in. Yes, you'll be standing alone, but you'll be standing alone together. But that's not all. In discipleship, putting God first in every relationship is really just the starting point. Even more, discipleship means holding God as everything and as central to everything. It means that your love for God is so great, so consuming, that every other relationship is dedicated to God, dictated and directed by God. That every other relationship finds its meaning in God. Here's what I mean. God is at the center of your relationship with your spouse. God is at the center of your relationship with your children. With your wider family. With your friends, with your neighbors, your co-workers, your barber. The teller at the bank, the clerk at the grocery store. Deception means that every relationship is now seen in light of God and who God is. Every relationship is now seen as an opportunity to glorify God and to serve God. Discipleship means that you are now submitting to God and seeking His will in every single interaction with others. Now, it sounds radical, and, and from a human perspective, it is. But listen, friends, this is, this is just discipleship. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But notice that it isn't just your relationship with your family that needs to be dedicated to God and dictated and directed by God. Jesus is calling disciples to something even more radical. He says, if anyone does not, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, look again at the end of verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you do not hate your own life, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, the word that's translated life here is, is suke, often translated soul. And ironically, this is the root for the word psychology. Well, the soul is the, the essence of life in terms of, of thinking, of, of willing and feeling. It's, it's who you are, mind and will and emotions. And again, Jesus is not saying here that you literally need to hate who you are in order to be his disciple. He's saying that your love for him, your love for Christ, needs to be far, far greater than even your love for yourself. Well, let's face it, we love ourselves and we love ourselves quite a bit. So then being a disciple means, means loving Jesus and seeking to love Jesus far more than your own mind and will and emotions. So God is central. Central not just in your relationship with others, but in your relationships, your relationship with yourself. Your mind and will and emotions need to be dedicated to God, dictated and directed by God. God is central in what you think about and all you desire and all you do and all you feel. 
Jesus says similarly in John 12, 25, again, using the word suke, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This, this verse provides pertinent details for what we're considering here. Again, notice that it's, it's your life. It's your soul in this world. Your soul is eternal. Your mind and your will and your emotions will outlive you. They will go on forever. And those who love their life more than Jesus will lose their life. They will perish. They will die in the second death, separated from Jesus Christ for all eternity in the torments of hell. However, those who love Jesus far more than their life in this world want to live with Jesus forever in eternity. They actually embrace death. It is these people who can say like Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. True disciples also know then that if God wills for them to remain on earth, then they're for a time, then their time is to be spent ministering to others and living life for the glory of God. But even more, true disciples know that it is, it is actually far better to depart to be with Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I, I love my life in this life. And it's, it's very easy for me to be consumed by the things of this life so that I don't consider this life in the light of eternal life. But the reality is if I'm living for the things of this life, I'm actually, I'm actually undermining the enjoyment of the things in this life. But when I think about my life in light of eternal life, a life with Jesus Christ, then the things of this life actually take on more value. Because I increasingly see them as gifts from God to be enjoyed and to be used for his glory and for the advance of his kingdom. Do you see that? The, the, the problem with, with so many people who live for the things of this life is that, is that they're, like C.S. Lewis says, they're too easily satisfied. They're happy making, making mud pies in the slums or they could be building sand castles on the beach. Are you too easily satisfied with the things of this life? Or as a disciple of Christ, are you seeking to interpret everything in light of your relationship with Jesus Christ? And that takes us to verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I've heard people say that this, is, this illness is my cross to bear. Or this breakup is my cross to bear. When something becomes a figure of speech, you need to be very careful. Because quite often... It, it, when it becomes a figure of speech, it's actually, the, the real meaning behind it is actually robbed of what it really means. Now, I'm not wanting to belittle the challenges of, of serious illness or of, of relational separation, but we must be extra careful not to belittle Jesus' exhortation here. In the ancient Near East, if you saw somebody walking down the road, carrying a cross, or actually carrying a cross beam, you would know exactly where they were going. They were going to their execution. This person would be covered in blood from the beating and the flogging that they had received at the hands of the Roman soldiers. 
And they'd now be escorted by the Roman soldiers to a, a prominent place where they would be nailed to that cross and hung up there naked to die in front of everybody. And that as those as those spikes went through their, their wrists and their ankles, they, as they were hanging there, they would have to put, put weight on them in order to breathe. And, and so death would come by, through ex, as, asphyxiation over the course usually of, of several days as, as they gradually grow weaker and weaker and as their life would ebb out. It was a horrific way to die. And it was reserved only for the worst crimes, for, for piracy and, and murder and insurrection and so on. And it was only a non-Roman citizen who could be crucified. Because only, because non-Roman citizens didn't have civil rights and they, they could, so they couldn't be cru- killed in this way. It was shameful. It was a barbaric way to die. Now we tend to think of Jesus' exhortation for us to carry our cross in light of his crucifixion. But remember that, that when Jesus taught this, the people would have no idea that Jesus was about to be crucified. Now he knew it. He knew it was coming. So this is another foreshadowing of what's about to take place. And we now know that Jesus is bidding us to follow in his footsteps. In verse 26, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, now he says, if you do not bear your cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is here emphasizing the ongoing relationship, the ongoing nature of discipleship. Discipleship begins with truly coming to Jesus. And discipleship continues with truly following Jesus. Pretending to follow Jesus without truly following Jesus is like living together with somebody without getting married. You must be completely committed to Jesus. But here it's not till death do you part. Here, in death, you will find life. And in this life, eternal life, you are united eternally with Jesus. So bearing your cross means giving up your life for Christ. It doesn't just mean taking a bullet. Death by crucifixion comes slowly. Death for the disciple comes slowly, not over the course of days, but over the course of a lifetime. Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. So what's Jesus doing here? He's got a great crowd following him. What what a great opportunity. Well, it sounds like Jesus is doing, it sounds like he's being anti-evangelical. It sounds like he's working against the gospel. It it sounds like he's, he's trying to convince people not to follow him. It sounds like he's joined the gospel prevention team. It looks like he's trying to thin out the crowd. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. It's exactly what he's doing. This is another proclamation of the gospel. This is another invitation to, to, to go up broadly for, for people to repent and to turn from their sins and to follow him. But he wants to warn them as to the nature of real discipleship. Jesus is showing people that, that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and that there are few who find it. Matthew seven fourteen. Jesus doesn't want people to make an emotional response, but he wants people to really follow him. 
Now, many of these people were, were following because they were swept up in a movement. It's, it's, it's easy for people to get swept up in a movement just to follow the crowd. But Jesus doesn't want people to follow the crowd. He wants the people to follow him. Likewise, Jesus didn't want people to make a pragmatic response to him. He didn't want them to follow him because of what they could get out of it. Many were following Jesus because they wanted the miracles, because they wanted the healing. They wanted the loaves and the fish. And many were following Jesus because they wanted, they wanted Rome out of Israel, and they wrongly assumed that Jesus was here on a political mission. As Jesus addresses the crowds, here he's, he's not just addressing disciples, but would-be disciples and won't-be disciples. Jesus is not worried about results. Jesus isn't focused on numbers. He wants true disciples. These days, it seems like, like everywhere you go, you gotta, you, you gotta read the fine print. Over the internet, when you, when you fill out a form, there's fine print. I don't know, do you tick the box? Do you, or do you actually read the fine print? I think very few of us actually read the fine print, but, but Jesus doesn't want there to be any fine print as to the cost of discipleship. Jesus is painting in very big and bold letters. He wants to be very clear what it means to follow him, that it will cost you everything. Salvation will cost you nothing, but discipleship will cost you everything. And here's he's been focusing on, it will cost you everyone. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Yes, you must make a decision to follow Jesus, but making a decision to follow Jesus is only the beginning. I decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me. The cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Again, salvation will cost you nothing, but discipleship will cost you everyone. It will cost you your life. It will cost you everything. So now let's look at verses 28 to 32. Discipleship of Jesus will cost you everything. I'm going to move a little more quickly here. In this section of the passage, Jesus uses two parallel parables to highlight the cost of discipleship. In the first, we have a wealthy landowner seeking to build a watchtower to protect his property. Now, it makes logical sense. If there is danger from from marauders and, and thieves, a watchtower would go a long way to helping you protect your property. But before beginning a project, notice what the project, before notice what Jesus says. That any landowner would first sit down and count the cost. Building a watchtower would be an expensive undertaking. And if you don't have the, the money to finish it, you, you, you wouldn't start it. Now Jesus said this long before Alpine Credits. Hello, Alpine Credit. I'd like to build a, I'd like to get a home equity loan to build a watchtower. Well, do you own your home along the watch, all along the watchtower? Yes, I'm not a joker. I'm not a thief. Approved. That's not how it works. You don't have the money, and if you do not have the money, you will not be able to finish. The wise homeowner does not rely on a loan. He sits down and thinks. He makes a careful assessment. Building the tower might have seemed like a wise move, but if you can't finish the project, the incompleted building will be a testament to your foolishness. People will mock you for your failure. 
And so Jesus is calling would-be disciples to stop and think before committing to follow him. In the second parable, verses 31 and 32, it's closely related. A king goes out to war against an enemy king. However, reconnaissance reveals that that this enemy king has 20,000 soldiers, while this king only has 10,000 soldiers. Double the number. And any wise king, when he's confronted with these kind of odds, he's going to sit down and think. Do you see the parallel here? Jesus is again calling would-be disciples to think before committing to come to him. Again, he's telling them to count the cost. Now the cost is higher. The cost isn't just mocking. The cost is utter defeat. The cost is thousands of dead soldiers. And so the wise king is going to send a delegation. While the opposing king is still way off in the distance. He's going to seek terms of peace. Now in this case, the opposing king is God himself. Do you have what it takes to enter into battle with God? Now you know the answer to that question. But have you thought about your answer to that question? This isn't just about theoretical ideas. This is about the reality of your relationship with God or the lack thereof. Have you made peace with God on his terms? Are you following Jesus? So essentially in the first parable, Jesus is saying, sit down and consider whether you can pay the price of coming to me. And in the second, he says, sit down and consider whether you can pay the price of not following me. Friends, the church is surrounded by half-finished towers and the dead bodies of those who did not count the cause. So Jesus says in verse 33, So therefore, if any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, renounce your possessions. Be willing to walk away. Be willing to leave it all behind. One day you will leave it all behind. So why not do it now? You came into this life with only a body. You will leave with less. The call to discipleship is not necessarily a call to poverty. Though for some it might be. Well, we'll talk about this when we get to the rich young ruler in Luke 18. The call to discipleship in this sense is a, is, is a call to live within your means. A call to live even more frugally. And even more than that, a call to use the resources that God has given you for His glory to serve others. You see, just like our relationship with others and our relationship with ourselves, discipleship does mean putting God first. It does mean loving God more than loving your stuff. However, as with our relationships with others and with ourselves in discipleship, putting God first in relationship with you, with your stuff is just the starting point. Discipleship means Holding God as everything and holding God as central to everything. It's interpreting everything you have, everything you are, in light of who, in light of who God is. So then your possessions, everything is to be dedicated to God. 
Your relationship with your stuff is dictated and directed by God. Your, your stuff finds its meaning and its, its value in God. As the one who's been set apart for God's use, everything that you have and everything you are is set apart for God's use. Your time, your money, your car, your house, you'll use it all for the glory of God and for the advance of his kingdom. This is discipleship. Discipleship means letting go and saying to God, it's yours. Again, Jesus is showing that the gate is narrow and the way is hard and that there will be few that find it. Salvation will cost you nothing, but discipleship will cost you everything. Is there anything that is keeping you from discipleship? Anything at all? Will it be worth it in the end? Now again, I think you know the answer, at least in theory. But one day it's going to be actuality. What is the actuality for you? Are you actually a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, finally and quickly, verses 34 and 35. Rejecting Jesus will cost you a whole lot more. If being a disciple of Jesus costs you everything, rejecting Jesus will cost you a whole lot more than that. So Jesus uses another parable to reveal the reality, to, to show that, again, that even though there's a cost to discipleship, the cost of not being a disciple is far greater. Jesus says salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, the salt that was used in, in Palestine at that time came primarily from the, the evaporated pools around the Dead Sea. And this, this salt was mixed with gypsum and, and many other minerals. And when the salt came into moisture, came in contact with moisture, the sodium chloride would, would leach out of it, and what was left didn't taste salty anymore. And so it was no good to enhance the flavor of food. And even worse, it was useless, useless as a preservative. But that was the main purpose of salt in that day, that in the days before refrigeration, that, that especially meat and fish would be salted in order to keep them from going bad. And so this unsalty salt was no longer useful. So Jesus is speaking here primarily of those who have made a profession of faith, but, ha but now deny the faith. Jesus is focusing on those who set out to follow him, but are no longer following him. He's talking about those then really who were never actually disciples. Now it's bad to reject Jesus outright at the offer of the gospel. But making overtures of following Jesus and, and walking away from him is even worse. Rejection uh, is one thing, but this form of rejection is renunciation. Those who, who once claimed to be disciples of Jesus, but now renounce him. This is even worse. Hebrews 6, 4-6 warns against this. For it is impossible in the case of one who has been enlightened and who tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to a contempt. We talked about this in relation to the unforgivable sin and the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Bible teaches that those 
who had made a profession of following Jesus and have walked away from him are actually in a worse state than those who have never accepted him in the first place, professed faith in the first place. They have left the church and they've gone back to the world. They left Jesus and returned to their sin. They have tasted the fellowship of the church and and they have have experienced, at least externally, the, the benefits of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the Lord's blessings by being a part of that fellowship. But now they reject him. And Jesus is especially warning against that. This is increasingly common in our culture. I, I think it's it's quite often a a, a sad but, but necessary result of if easy believism. In the cultures where where we're coming to Jesus is 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 really demeaned to the point of, of walking an aisle or, or raising a hand or signing a card. People who have made a false profession of faith. People who have, have never even really heard the gospel. But are told that they're Christians. And it's really no wonder that, that people like that will, will walk away. But it's not just people like that. It's people who have, have really heard the gospel. It's, it's people who have, have really been a, been a part of churches, even pastors. It's become so common in our culture, there's even a word for it now. It's, it's deconstruction. It's Christian deconstruction. And I've known people who, who had really sound doctrine, at least externally moral lives, who are now by their own testimony going through what they're referring to as, as deconstruction of the faith. You need to remember that that you're not saved on the basis of having good doctrine. The devil has good doctrine. The devil has far better doctrine than you. Not saved on the basis of good doctrine, nor are you saved on on the basis of external morality. The Pharisees had far better external morality than you. You're saved on the basis of Christ, and faith in Christ and Christ alone. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That is the basis of salvation. So we need to realize that that true salvation is true discipleship. And that if, as Jesus warns here in, in verse, as Jesus warns here in verse 35, for this unsalty salt, it's it's no use either for the soil or the, or the manure pile. It's, it's to be thrown away. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says something similar. He says it's, it's, it's to be trampled underfoot, to be thrown away and trampled underfoot. If Jesus isn't your everything, you are nothing. If Jesus isn't everything in, in light of, of who you are and your ability to, and you're, you're part of the kingdom of God, you are nothing. You're useless. In fact, you're worse than useless. And especially if you've been someone who's professed faith but has now walked away from the faith, you're actually a hindrance to the advance of the gospel because many unbelievers will use you as exhibit A to keep from coming to the faith in the first place. 
So this is a warning. This is a warning to true disciples to keep them falling away. This is a warning to would-be disciples to count the cost before they follow Jesus. And it's a warning to won't-be disciples who will never come to Jesus of what they are paying and the price they will ultimately pay if they do not follow Jesus. So in this passage is, is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us all to examine ourselves in light of the radical demands that Jesus calls us to with discipleship. Now, as I've said many times, in, every week when I prepare to preach, it's at the outset, it's, Lord, please, may the, the truths of this passage and any, any conviction that, that I need to come under in light of this passage, may I be the first one who's impacted by these things. I can't leave the church somewhere that I haven't been. And virtually every week, there's there's something that really hits my heart. Either something I need to be encouraged from from the Word or, or something I, I need to be convicted of from, of from the Word. And this week is everything. The whole passage. At every point, I'm, I was convicted and I was encouraged. Because I realize how far I fall short of what Jesus demands of me as a disciple. And I trust you're in the same boat. You see, there's a difference between salvation and the sanctification that comes with your salvation where you are are positionally set apart for Jesus Christ. And then there's a progressive sanctification as you continue to grow in Christ. So so when you come to saving faith in Christ, you you yes, you've repented of your sin of your sin. Yes, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You are set apart for him and for his glory. And then in the, the day-to-day progression of your life, you are growing in your sanctification, as you are increasingly made more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God that, that our, our salvation is not conditional on being perfect disciples, or there would be no one in heaven. Think about the Apostle Peter. In Peter's denial of Jesus, he did not take up his cross and follow Jesus. Praise God, he repented of his sin and, and he grew. And, and even, even after he initially repented and when Jesus confronted him, he still wasn't perfect. He still didn't perfectly tap, take up his cross. But, but eventually he would come to a point, yes, still not with, with perfect, with perfection, but, but Peter would take up his cross where he would eventually be crucified. And as it's recounted, he said he was not willing to be crucified like his Lord and Savior. So he said, if you're going to crucify me, crucify me upside down. So Peter followed Jesus, even to the point of giving up his life. All disciples of Jesus followed Jesus, even to the giving up of their lives. And 
not just at the end of your life. When you give up your life to follow Jesus, you are seeking to give up your life to follow Jesus today. And you are seeking through the power of the Holy Spirit to repent of your failures to do that. And to, by, by God's grace, be picked up, dusted off, and set back on the way. That's what it means to be a, re- a real disciple. To be really following Jesus. And when you fail to really follow Jesus, repent of your failure to follow Jesus. Trusting in the blood of Christ to forgive you for all of your sins. Is that you? Are you a real disciple of Jesus? Are you walking in repentance and faith? Are you, are you continually examining yourself in the, in the light of, 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 of the word of God and, and even especially in light of uh, the hard passages like the one we looked at this morning? Are you trusting in the blood of Christ for your salvation? Are you seeking to treasure Jesus above all things? Do you understand the value that you have in Jesus? Do you understand, and by that I I don't mean the value you have, I mean the value you, you possess in possessing Jesus. Because yes, you will suffer in this life if you follow Jesus. Follow Jesus long enough, you will suffer. But you will on that day say it was worth it. That 10,000 times anything, any, anything I suffered, any deprivation I experienced in this life, 10,000 times that would be worth it. Because you will know what it's like to, to walk in the presence of Jesus. And the one you once believed in by faith, you now will know by sight. If that's your hope, if you're seeking to follow Jesus for all of your life and on into eternal life, then you're hoping in Jesus, not just in this life, but in the next life as well. And if that's you, then then you are welcome to come to the table to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ on that cross for your sins, knowing that, that he has empowered you and he is empowering you through his Holy Spirit to follow you, to actually take up your cross and follow him because he took up his cross for you. In fact, he took up your cross. He died on that cross for your sins and for mine. And you know that that wasn't the end of the story. You know that he was raised to new life on the third day. He's ascended to the Father where he now sits enthroned and where he's interceding for you at this very moment. And you can have confidence that no matter what comes, you can trust him. Because he's been there before. Because he's been there for you. And you know that normally I will I will close in prayer. I'll finish this, this sermon by closing in prayer, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to give you a moment to close in prayer. You know, in heart to lift up your heart to God. To come to Him, maybe, maybe for things that you have been convicted of that you need to repent of. Maybe to ask for strength to overcome temptation. Maybe a fear of, of what's going to come in the future that, that you will apostatize, that you will walk away. Maybe it might even mean coming to him the first time in real repentance and faith and, and really becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ.